Hello, and welcome to Stuff You Should Know About Oil and Gas Production. This podcast is brought to you by Kimray. You can visit us at kimray.com to see our full slate of quick tips, videos, and other training materials. Kyle, this is our 50th episode. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Five, 50th episode. So pretty exciting. Um, and we have a special guest to help us to help us celebrate. Kyle, you want to introduce our guest? Yeah, today we have uh, Tim Rickle. He's the engineering manager at Arc Energy. Uh, so welcome, Tim. How are you doing? Doing well. Thank you, Kyle. And thanks, thanks for joining us, Tim. Uh, Tim, we, uh, Kyle and I, I know Kyle's had some other experiences, but I've gotten to, uh, to sit in on some training that Tim has done and just a very uh, knowledgeable, experienced uh, guy around fabrication and, and engineering and design of, of uh, oil and gas separation equipment and dehydration equipment. So we wanted to, to have Tim on and just uh, pick his brain a little bit about, about some of these things. And, and uh, Tim, I thought we'd start, though, on a, on a personal note. Can you tell us a little bit about where you're from, where you grew up, uh, your work history, your hobbies, anything like that? Sure. Um, well, I, I was born in Kansas and, and uh, early years were in California, but uh, my father moved the family to western Oklahoma in 73, and I've been here ever since. Graduated college in 82 and uh, started right off in designing oil and gas production and processing equipment. So it's, it's been a really good career and, and uh, seen a lot of things. Yeah. Now, was your, was your father in the, in the industry as well? No, my father was actually a pastor. Uh, oh, yeah. Okay. And his entire career. And uh, he retired from that. But uh, so it's, it's was a new career for my family. Uh, I'm the first and only in the oil and gas industry. Yeah. Yeah, they. I'm sure your family saw the ups and downs and was like, "No, thank you. I don't want any part of that." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'd be curious, what town in, in Western Oklahoma, Tim? Well, we grew up in uh, Thomas, okay, Oklahoma, and um, I lived in Burns Flat shortly in Cordell, and uh, currently in Weatherford. All right. Yeah, I've got some. My wife's family is from out out there in the Panhandle, out near Guyman. So okay. I've, spent, I've spent some time on that, on those drives. Yeah. Um, uh, all right, Tim, well, we're talking today about, about gas dehydration. And so again, our, our podcast, we, we try and just educate uh, our listeners on some element of oil and gas production. And that's, you know, could be, uh, you know, separation to plunger lift to all kinds of things. But today we wanted to, to pick your brain about gas dehydration. So if, if I'm a new person to the industry, maybe going out and just learning about this, can you talk through uh, just first of all, what is, what is gas dehydration? Why do we do it? Sure. When gas comes out of the ground, we're talking about natural gas in its vapor state. It is saturated with water vapor typically. And when we dehydrate it, we dry that gas out basically removing the water vapor from the stream. Um, it's kind of like, if you think about it, coming out of the ground at 100% humidity. We talk about that in our weather. And when we dry it out, the uh, relative humidity goes down. So that's what we're doing with the gas. We're drying the water vapor out of the gas. Uh, a typical gas stream, let's say, saturated, at a, and, and it varies 
how much water is in the gas uh, at different pressures and temperatures. Let's say we have a stream at 1,000 PSI and 100 degrees. That holds about 60 pounds of water vapor per million standard cubic feet. And a typical pipeline specification is seven pounds per million. So that means we need to remove the difference. Now at higher temperatures or lower pressures, the gas will hold much more water. Um, so you have to know those pressures and temperatures to determine how much water we need to remove. So for you, when you're, when you're designing, uh, you know, your, your skids and equipment, is that something that, that plays into your calculations of, okay, I know this is how much, you know, pressure we need. So that's how I want to, how big I want to design this vessel. Correct. And, and just to give a, a, an example, we said a thousand PSI and a hundred degrees would be 60 pounds. It changes quite a bit. Uh, the same thousand PSI gas, but just 120 degrees that's 103 pounds of water vapor. So it makes quite a bit of difference and that, that really does affect the size of our dehydration equipment. Okay, so, uh, so that's just kind of a summary of, of gas dehydration. Now, why, you, you talked about kind of, as we're sending it midstream, what requirements those companies have. So is that the key reason why we do gas dehydration? Yes. That, that's one key reason uh, the, the contracts, they, they want seven pounds per million. Well, the reason they want that, the reason they want it dry is that wet gas is gonna corrode the pipelines quicker. When the gas is flowing through the pipeline, it'll cool. And as it's cooled, water will condense and collect in the low places in the pipeline. This reduces the efficiency of the line it causes lots of issues uh, because that water will collect in the low spots. So those are the two main reasons we dehydrate. And, and the last thing we want, last thing anybody wants is corroded gas pipelines. That's a dangerous situation. Correct. Okay, we have on here a dew point. So I think this is what you were getting at with, uh, with your initial comments. Is that, is that a key indicator of, of and kind of what we're trying to, to lower, I guess, to get to those contracts? numbers right right so the dew point is the temperature at which water vapor will condense into a liquid so a saturated stream at a given uh, has a certain amount of water at a given pressure and temperature and as that temperature is lowered water will condense uh, the gas is still saturated just at a lower temperature lower temperatures hold less water vapor and when we dehydrate we're effectively lowering that dew point temperature, not lowering the actual temperature of the gas, the temperature at which the condensation would form if the gas got to that temperature. Uh, I think that's a common mis misconception that, that I've run into when you talk about, you know, you say, hey, I want, you know, 80 degree gas, or, you know, I want 60 degree gas. Um, you're not, when I first started getting into this and I heard that, I thought, well, why, why does it have to be 60 degrees? And they weren't talking about the physical temperature mm -hmm. of the gas. They were talking about dew point. Uh, so that was something that always confused me, trying to go back and forth between 
the actual temperature, physical temperature of the gas, and then talking about dew point. It gets a little confusing. Right. So we can go back to that original example. Let's say that 1,000 PSI and 100 degree gas, when it's dried to, to the point where it has seven pounds per million, it has a dew point temperature of 33 degrees. Even though the gas is still at 100 degrees, we've dried it until its dew point temperature is 33 degrees. Yeah, so that, that meaning that it has to get to 33 degrees before there will be um, any condensing of liquids. That's correct. And I'm assuming that's just the streams are going to differ depending on your location, just your, your production conditions well to well, right? That's right. And there's, there's actually two different dew point temperatures. I don't want to get this too confusing, but there's a water dew point and there's also a hydrogen dew point. Uh, they're typically just a rule of thumb about 10 or 15 degrees apart. And it does depend on the composition of the gas, uh, the actual hydrocarbon composition. So but, does uh, the, uh, the hydrocarbons, do they typically, is it 15 degrees less or 15 degrees before the water would reach its dew point or after? That, that's a very good question. It's typically 10 to 15 degrees warmer. And I think that makes sense because you'll have, you know, if, if there's condensate falling out in the pipeline, you'll have potentially blockages where, you know, that condensation or water will, will freeze. Um, and it doesn't even have to be at 32 degrees. Um, for that to happen, it can be much warmer. Correct. And that, that brings in another uh, term we use, and that's hydrates. A hydrate is, is a solid that's formed. Uh, a lot of people will re refer to it as ice, but it's called a hydrate. And you're exactly right. Under pressure, those hydrates can form at, at temperatures uh, well above 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Back to our same example at 1,000 PSI, those hydrates can start to form in the mid-60s, you know, 64, 65 degrees. That's just because of the, the presence of hydrocarbons and water vapor in combination under pressure. Yeah, let's talk about those hydrocarbons for just a second. Uh, you know, so we've, we're separating the dehydration process Water is kind of the, the broad term for it, but you mentioned there's hydrocarbons in there, and those can be uh, pretty valuable if customers choose to, to try and get those out as well, right? Right. Let's say, again, I'm, I'm walking out onto a site for, for the first time. Can we just walk through just some of the key components of a dehydration system, Tim? Sure. So uh, many times there's going to be a, uh, an inlet scrubber or a uh, filter coalescer. Um, many times we're, we're downstream of a gas compression station. So uh, you're going to have lube oils or uh, maybe some condensables that, that the inlet scrubber will take out. Uh, a coalescer might take out residual uh, lube oils and things from the compressors. Um, and then the gas will immediately go from there into the contact tower or absorber 
interchangeable terms. And in the contact tower is where the, the action happens and the gas typically is moving vertically through the tower and, and the, uh, the lean glycol would be coming down through the tower, making contact. And then that glycol is taken back to the regeneration skid. And the regeneration skid is gonna have, you know, the, the reboiler with a steel column. It's gonna have heat exchangers. Uh, there's gonna be filtration maybe particle filters as well as uh, charcoal absorbers. There'd be a flash separator typically, the, and of course the glycol pump. So the, the glycol will come to the regeneration skid, go through heat exchangers, the flash separator, and ends up in the reboiler where it's, it's reconcentrated. And that water that it picked up in the contactor is boiled off so that the glycol can be recirculated again. Um, the heat exchangers are just to help conserve energy. Those are the primary components you're gonna see on, on every dehydrator. I, I think I just realized we got this far without even mentioning glycol until you just did there. So that is, <laughs> that is uh, I, I guess, a central key component of any gas dehydration system, right? So, so maybe what is glycol? Why is it used? So typically we use triethylene glycol um, and that is used because it has a great affinity for the water vapor. In other words, it, it has an attraction for that water when it's coming in contact with the gas. And there's different types of glycol but we use the triethylene glycol because it has a much higher boiling point. Um, and so we can run our reboiler or reconcentrator at temperatures, you know, close to 400 degrees. And obviously at atmospheric pressure, water boils at 210 degrees. So there's a great difference there. Um, other glycols boil at much lower temperatures and it would be much harder to reconcentrate to an effective level. So the key, the key you mentioned, uh, separation or, or dehydration happens in that in that contact tower or absorber. We always the, the joke we we make around here is if there's two or three different things that people refer to one thing as, it's it's uh, it depends on how you were raised. If you call it a contact tower or an absorber. Uh, but so as the, I know there's different styles, different designs, but as the gas is coming up, the, the glycol kind of moves down typically, right? Right. So the, the glycol is coming down just because of gravity. It's in a liquid form and the gas is moving up uh, mainly because you've, uh, the inlet is at the bottom of the tower and the only place it can go is up like you say, different types of contact towers. There's, a, there's bubble cap trays, there's structured packing, there's random packing. And you, you might ask, well, which one do you use or which one's more effective? It really depends on the flow rates, pressures, and temperatures. We would typically use the random packing on smaller towers and, and bubble cap trays for kind of the mid-range and then as we uh, as we talk about structured packing, that's used typically on the larger systems. 
So when you say large system, <clears throat> how many cubic feet are we talking about per day? Like what's, what's a small flow rate, medium and large? That's a good question, Kyle. So when I'm talking about a small system for random packing, it would be a, a tower 20 inch diameter, say and smaller. And that would maybe handle eight to 10 million uh, cubic feet, depending on the pressure. And from there, Part of it is just the physical ability to build a tower. A small tower, smaller than 20 inch in a, in a tray tower is pretty difficult to fabricate. You can do it and it's been done. I've seen 12 inch tray towers, but typically we start seeing tray towers at the 20, 24 inch. And in theory, you could build a tray tower at any diameter, but the structured packing can handle a lot more gas for the same size tower. So we start building structured pack towers nowadays, uh, even as small as 24 inch. So there's some overlap. You might see a, a 30 inch structured pack tower that could handle 40, 50 million, depending on the pressure. Okay. Now, if you had a, uh, a trade tower, and a packed tower, uh, a structured packed tower, the same, same diameter, uh, how much more can the structured packed tower handle as far as flow rate? No, twice as much for the same diameter tower. Now, can you, can you take a second, Tim, and uh, talk about turn down ratio and just a, a trade tower versus, the, versus a packed tower? Yeah, that's, that's a very good question. Um, from what we just discussed. So uh, uh, tray towers, kind of depending on how they're built, you might see four to five uh, to one turn down. So five to one turn down, if it's designed for 50 million, it could probably go down to 10 million and operate. A, a structured pack tower effectively can have a much greater turn down as long as you keep enough glycol flowing to keep all the packing wetted, uh, you, could have, you could have turn downs 10 or 20 to one even in some cases. Some of the manufacturers don't like to guarantee that well of turn down, but it can be accomplished. Right, so by turn down we're talking about you know, a vessel is designed to handle a certain amount of flow rate uh, with its size and internals. But if you're not flowing that much, that turn down ratio is just the ratio to what it was designed for to what's your actual, is that, that what that ratio means? Right, from the, from say the maximum allowable for that particular size to the minimum that it can take and still uh, perform. So okay. if it's designed for a maximum of 50 million, a five to one turndown means uh, it can effectively still work at 10 million. Okay. So after you, you would drop below 10 million, you're losing efficiency. You're not uh, drying the gas out like you, like you want to be. But physically, what's going on inside of the absorber that's making that efficiency drop. So you're probably channeling 
the glycol is going to one side while the gas is going up the other side and it's not making good contact. So therefore it's not gonna meet the, the dew point spec. Okay, so with lower velocities, you're gonna have the tendency to, to channel or you know, the gas is taking the path of least resistance Correct. to the tower. Right. In a smaller situation, you may be just dehydrating from one well, right? Versus uh, a big gathering station where uh, you've got multiple wells that you're you're pulling the gas from and dehydrating. How, what's what's uh, say like one of the largest you've seen, Tim? How many wells? You know, idea. I'm not sure on how many wells might have been feeding it, but uh, we've we've seen uh, requests for quotations and, and units built uh, as much as 400 million a day. I had I actually had one this morning that was an inquiry for a 400 million a day dehydrator. Wow! Wow! What uh, what size tower goes on something like that? I hadn't even had a chance to size that yet. <laughs> still, still doing math right now. Yeah. But uh, I would guess, uh, you know, when it gets that big, I usually recommend splitting it into two smaller towers. Um, and so, if I were going to do 200 million. It might be in a in a sixty to sixty six inch diameter structured pack tower. Uh, again, it really does depend on the operating pressure. Um, pressure is a is a big factor in sizing the diameter of your towers because gas is a compressible uh, state. So as the higher the pressure, a certain amount of gas takes up less volume. Right. So if you had a, uh, a sixty inch tower operating at 500 PSI versus one operating at 1,000 PSI, you could effectively squeeze more through the tower. Right. All right, Tim, well, this has been great. Uh, we're running a little bit long on time, so but I have a lot more questions for you. So we're going to go ahead and pause here and split this into two episodes. So come back next time, listeners, for episode two of, uh, of Gas Dehydration Conversation.